Please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. For me, periodically, I just have to take a a complete uh, fast from all forms of media. And the reason for that is that it it just becomes really uh, discouraging and, and honestly frustrating for me because I consume all kinds of pieces of information most of which I can do nothing about, right? Almost all of it's bad news and I can't really act upon hardly any of it, right? In, in the political realm, the players change, but nothing changes. And, you know, on a, maybe a local level, I can have some kind of influence, but not on a national level or a global level. And I just find that really frustrating. And so I just have to stop periodically and step back. And when I do, I will often turn to Psalm chapter 2, which I memorized uh, many years ago. Because Psalm chapter 2 reminds me that God's Son will rule and reign forever, right? And that all earthly kingdoms will be wiped away, and that his rule and reign will be perfect in its righteousness and holiness and justice and love. And so even on this weekend when we're celebrating, uh, for many of us who are Americans, celebrating the birth of this nation, we need to remember that our hope is is not in any earthly kingdom. Our hope is in the kingdom of God's Son, right? So Psalm chapter 2 reminds me that I don't need to worry so much about all of those headlines. I have hope. It also instructs me how I should live day in and day out in joyful submission to the Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's read Psalm chapter 2 and and really celebrate this morning the kingdom of God's Son. Psalm chapter 2 begins like this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Uh, Psalm chapter 2 actually uh, outlines fairly simply. It's constructed of four movements. There are four individuals or groups who speak. First, uh, these earthly rebels speak out against the authority of God and God's son. And then God intervenes and God speaks. And then God's son will speak. And then finally, the psalmist will make an application for us from each of these four parts. But first, it's earth's rebels who are revolting or uh, rebelling against the authority of God on the earth. Now, to set a little context for you, Psalm chapter 2 is what's described as a royal psalm. Specifically, it's a coronation psalm. So during the, the history of Israel as a nation, this psalm would be recited or it would be sung or it would be acted out as a drama at the coronation of a new king. So you've got these four parts and you can imagine individuals being assigned parts or groups who have parts and they would sing each of the parts in succession 
when the new king was being coronated, which was a time of incredible celebration for Israel, but it was also a time of national crisis. Right? So one king has died, and they're celebrating the inauguration or the installation of his son, but in the ancient Near East, this was also a time of crisis because any nations that that king had subdued that were giving tribute to him would often rise up in rebellion and say, we're not going to submit to the son. We're not going to continue to bring taxes and tribute. We are now independent. And in their rebellion, the nation would be about to enter into a crisis. And so people realize we're celebrating on the one hand, but we're probably going to have to send our husbands and our sons to war to defend our territory. So the coronation was at the same time celebration, but also crisis in exactly the same moment. So the psalm begins with a tension in a sense that, that we, we don't usually experience, right? Because when leadership changes in our nation, it's always peaceful. But in the... <laughs> people aren't shooting each other and throwing spears. Let's just... Can we say that at least? That's not true in the ancient Near East. It's not true in a lot of parts of the world even today. Right? The headlines are disturbing. Even in our own nation, they're disturbing. Right? Why? Because mankind rebels against God. Mankind, mankind in general, hates God. There's something in the heart of man that wants to say no. That's true of nations. That's true of us, individually, personally. We want to say, no, God. No, no God, I, I, can, I can figure this out on my own. No, God, I can solve this on my own. No, God, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I want to run my own life. That's really rooted in the fall of Adam and Eve. The essence of their sin was a rebellion against the authority of God. Satan came and tempted them and said, you don't have to be under God's authority. You can be like God. In fact, the reason God is withholding this one particular tree in the garden is because he doesn't want you to know that you can live free. Free from his authority. Independent. And so they took that fruit of the tree and they chose independence from God and they passed that along to each and every one of us. If you're a parent... You know, you've seen this. You've seen this. If you can't admit it in your own life, you sure see it in your children, right? You don't have to teach your kids to say no. You have to teach them to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. You have to teach them to say thank you, but you don't have to teach them to say no. They learn no before they learn mama or dada, right? No. I remember I was talking to a young friend of mine uh, several years back, and he and his wife were about to have their first child. And so he's asking me some questions. You know, parenting is completely theoretical at that point. So he's asking me these theoretical questions theological questions about parenting. And, and he said, so when do you see the, you know, that sin nature begin to emerge? And I said, almost immediately, right? Almost immediately. I said, you're going to be changing your daughter's diaper at some point. She's going to arch her back and scream. And she's saying, no, she's saying, no, I have a better plan, right? Does she have a better plan? No, she does not have a better plan. And here's the irony, right? The irony is you're trying to do something good for her. And she's rebelling against that. And that's true for each and every one of us. Every time we say no to God, he's trying to do what is good and best in our lives. And we think we have a better way. It's true of rulers. It's true of nations. It's true of families. It's true of individuals. And Psalm 2 starts with that crisis. Why are the peoples devising a vain thing, a foolish thing, an empty thing? And the psalm ends with a reminder that the place of greatest blessing in our lives is living in submission to the authority of God, saying yes to God. So it begins with this. 
Earth's rebels are in revolt against God, and then God speaks. Chapter 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Chapter 2, verse 4. The scene shifts to heaven. And God is seeing what's transpiring on the face of earth, his creation. And he's not surprised. He's not unnerved. He's uh, not threatened. But he is angry. But he's angry. He laughs, but it's really, it's a derisive laugh. He's, he's scoffing at them. But then when he speaks, he speaks out of his anger. You know, I don't, I don't um, necessarily like to spend all of my time meditating on the anger of God. Right? <laughs> hey, let's have a quiet time this morning. Let's write a little devotional. Let's, think of, let's just think on the anger of God. That's not usually where I, dr- I, I drift toward. Right? I don't gravitate toward the anger of God. I want to spend more time thinking about God's mercy and kindness and compassion. Right? But remember this. When the Bible speaks of God's fundamental attributes, it, it doesn't say angry, angry, angry is God. Right? That's not core to the, the nature of God's personality. It does say holy, holy, holy. But God is, is absolutely pure and righteous and true. And that influences all of his emotions and actions. Because he is absolutely righteous and holy and just and true, when he sees sin, it makes him sad and he grieves, but he's also angry. He's angry because God's greatest longing is for men and women to be reconciled to him. But when they live in rebellion against him, they can't be reconciled and they create a culture around them if they have authority like these rulers do, in which it's more difficult for others to become reconciled to him. And so God is angry towards sin. It's not, in in that sense, uh, just essential to God's personality, angry, angry, angry. No, but holy, holy, holy is true. And because he's holy, 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 he must deal with sin and punish sin so that people can be reconciled to him, right? That's the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that that in the cross of Christ, we have this perfect intersection of God's fundamental attributes. In his perfect holiness, in his righteousness and justice, he must punish sin. He can't wave it off as if it did not occur. He must punish sin. But in his love and his kindness, he punishes sin, our sin, in Jesus, instead of punishing it in us. Right? He pours out the full weight of his wrath against our sin onto the person of Jesus. So Jesus stands, in a sense, in our way as a shield and protector for us. The wrath of God comes in upon him and puts him to death. Instead of putting us to death. We stand behind Jesus as a shield, as a substitute, taking the full weight of our sin so that we can experience the love of God through Christ's sacrifice, right? So perfect intersection. The moment then that we believe that Jesus Christ is our shield and protector, we have the removal of our debt of sin paid for by Jesus and we have life or reconciliation in him. That's the essence of the gospel message. So You know, there's so many things you read Genesis to Revelation, you go, man, that's difficult and confusing. But if you want to understand the very nature of Christianity itself, you just look at that intersection of the perfect attributes of God in the cross of Jesus Christ and you believe. And now you can see why it's absolutely critical that we understand that there's nothing that we do to earn the love of God. We don't 
we don't bring anything to this equation of the cross other than our sin. What we put before the cross of Christ is just our sin. We don't come because of our merit, because we deserve the love of God. We come because Christ has paid the debt of our sin. And you know, that'll always be true. Right? For all of eternity, we'll still rush boldly into the presence of God because of Jesus. Jesus will always be the one who makes a way for us. He'll always be the advocate for us. Not because we have somehow become better and we've progressed to a point that God should accept us on our own merits, but it will always be purely by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Right? That's the gospel message. And so, Here in Psalm chapter 2, as these nations are rising up in rebellion, the headlines are getting very frightening for the nation of Israel. What they resort to is the justice and holiness and righteousness of God. God speaks and he says, I don't care what all of you kings are saying, I've already put my king in place. I've installed my king on Zion, in Jerusalem, and he will rule and reign forever. Now, what's interesting to me about Psalm 2 also is that it's one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. This is one of the psalms that the early church went back to time after time after time. Why? Because the headlines were really distressing in their day as well. But they lived under the domination of the Roman Empire, which was a godless empire. It was an empire that hated God and lived in rebellion against God and as a result persecuted Christians. Now this is a a figure of uh, Nero. And Nero was, among the Caesars, was one of the, the most evil, immoral man. Uh, he would take Christians, round them up, and he would stick them in baskets on top of poles, pour oil on them and light them, and let them be the, the lights in the evening in the city. He, he, he took away their property, he took away their freedom, he took away their lives. As far as we know from church history, he's probably the Caesar, the emperor who killed the apostle Paul. Right? And evil, evil man, and they lived under an empire that was not in submission to the kingdom of God. So where did they go? Well, they went back to Psalm 2 and the reminder that God's son will rule and reign forever. And we see this consistently being applied throughout all of history. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. Right? What do we know of the Roman Empire today? We know rocks. We know stones. Right? We know We know artifacts scattered throughout Europe and the Near East. That's the Roman Empire. You read the book of Isaiah, chapter 37. It tells of King Sennacherib, who was the most powerful earthly ruler at the time. He came down from Assyria, and he swept in, and he wiped out the northern king of Israel. And then he was threatening the southern king of Judah. He was right at the gates of Jerusalem. And the Jews cried out for deliverance to God, and one night... The angel of the Lord came in and he wiped out 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. So Sennacherib packed up camp. He went back to his capital in Nineveh and he was assassinated. And his kingdom began to degenerate. And then another king rose up, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar eventually was the ruler and reigner, the king, the one who reigned over the nation of Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar began to grow proud in his heart. And he said, you know, I'm really pretty great. We've, we've destroyed the Assyrian kingdom. I rule and reign over this vast empire. My hand has constructed all of these amazing uh, buildings and palaces and temples. I'm, I'm really a pretty great guy. And he was warned. He said, no, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to acknowledge God. Because he's the ruler over all creation. And he gives authority to different rulers for a period of time. And he's given you a little bit of authority for a period of time. But you need to acknowledge him. So Nebuchadnezzar kind of backed up for a little while. But then about a year later, he's standing on his palace 
veranda, you remember? And he's looking out and he's saying, wow, I'm really something. And God said, no, not really. Wham, struck him. Remember, and he's just, next thing we see, he's down on his hands and knees and he's eating grass. <laughs> he's eating grass. It says his fingernails are growing long, his hair is growing long, he looks like a, a beast of the field, rain comes down upon him, he can't communicate with anyone, his mind has left him until he lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, I give, I submit. There's just one king of kings and lord of lords, and it's not me. And God graciously restores his sanity. Right? Sometimes immediately, sometimes it takes time. King Agrippa in the New Testament, Herod Agrippa, Remember, he, he dominated a, a period, or a, a, a portion of uh, Palestine, and he had Tyre and Sidon were under his control, and they'd kind of rebelled against, against him again, and he was going in to, to rebuke them. And so uh, they realized they need grain and food from him. They all gathered together to kind of say, oh, sorry, Agrippa. They're in, they're in the theater. They're in the auditorium there in, in uh, Caesarea. And they're begging for his forgiveness. Remember in Agrippa, remember the story? He's in his shiny robes. And the sun is coming down off the Mediterranean and Mediterranean, it's shining on King Agrippa. And all of a sudden the people start crying out. They go, oh, the voice of a God, not of a man. The voice of a God, not of a man. The voice of a God, not of a man. And it says the Holy Spirit struck him and worms came into him and ate him. (laughs) I love that story. As a kid, that's a really good story. Worms ate him. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. God will exercise his authority over all of the earth. I want you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. In Daniel's day, there were many troubling headlines. Daniel lived as an exile, and he served foreign kings. But Daniel was given visions. He was given reminders that one day God's son would rule and reign over everything. Uh, Sometimes he was given interpretation, interpretations of the visions of others. Nebuchadnezzar, in particular, had a vision, and he didn't understand it, and it really troubled him. And it was a vision basically about earthly kingdoms and the final kingdom of the Son of God. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, this is Daniel speaking. He says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. And the single great statue represented earthly kingdoms, and the different parts of the statue represented different kingdoms within earthly kingdoms. And so Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. It says, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and, it appear, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Now move to verse 44. In the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And turn to chapter 7, verse 13, one of Daniel's visions. Chapter 7, verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men from every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Do the headlines can depress us and discourage us and frustrate us because we can't act upon them, and then we're reminded that there will be a kingdom from God, and his son will rule and reign over all nations and all kingdoms forever, and his kingdom will be perfect in its righteousness. I turn back to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Now the Son will speak. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord, that is the Father, has said to me, the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. God's son proclaims his authority. God's son says, I have been installed. I'm the one. I'm the ruler. I'm the firstborn. You know, uh, for me, I, I, didn't, I didn't experience this at home. I was actually the secondborn. Right? I have a sister that's older than me by a you know, kind of tragic twist of fate. She was born ahead of me, and so uh, she often would have authority over me. And it was a horrible thing. It was, it was a wretched part of my existence growing up, right? My parents would leave, and they'd go on a date or whatever, and they would say, Cheryl's in charge. Brian, you need to listen to Cheryl, because we're leaving Cheryl in charge of you. Cheryl has authority over you, right? They didn't just go on and on, but that's how it felt at that point in time, right? So she, they would leave, and my sister would assert. She just loved asserting her authority. So remember, mom and dad left me in charge, and everything in me, I was just like, no. No, you know, in my heart and in my actions and sometimes my words, I would say no. And she would say, remember, mom and dad left me in charge and mom and dad are coming back and I'm going to tell them what you did, right? And I would just hate that. Sometimes I just go in my room and scream. It's like, this is horrible, right? To live under this tyranny. And I remember, I remember, you know, when I finally became old enough that they could just leave me alone at home by myself, it's like, throw off the shackles of Cheryl's horrible rule over me. It was just a wonderful moment, right? There's just something inside of me. I go, no, I don't want that. I want to be independent. Right? That's what's happening in this psalm. The nations of the earth, these rulers, these children are saying, no, God. And God's saying, well, I've left my son in charge. And now the son speaks and says, hey, you better do what I say because the father left me in charge. I'm in charge. And these words that the Son of God speaks were first spoken to God's ruler, David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was given a covenant, right? an, an everlasting covenant. David was told, told uh, David, one of your sons will rule and reign from your throne forever. Right? So David was given these promises first. But then subsequently, as each of David's sons took the throne... They would reiterate these promises from God. They would have a covenant renewal ceremony. Psalm chapter 2 outlines this covenant renewal ceremony. And the the son would agree to the terms of the covenant. And he would uh, agree to live under the authority of God. The ceremony would look something like this. It's described in 2 Kings chapter 11. It says, Then Jehoiada the priest brought the king's son out and he put the crown on him. 
And he gave them the testimony and they made him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and they said, long live the king. All right, so this is a description of one of these covenant renewal ceremonies. Psalm chapter 2 is recited or it's sung. And what happens in this process is the crown is placed upon him. That is, he's the legitimate ruler. Because each king would often have multiple sons, but as the crown was placed upon this one's head, they were acknowledging this is the son who's the legitimate heir. Right? And then he was given a, a testimony. That he was given his own personal copy of the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. Right? The Mosaic Covenant, in a sense, would entail his promises to God. I will rule and reign over your people under your authority according to this constitution, this document. And the Davidic Covenant would be the r- reminder of the promises that God had made to this king and to his heirs. Right? And there are, th- in a sense, three... Uh, Three elements of this uh, covenant that came forth in the renewal process, right? When the king was anointed, literally oil poured on his head, and he was declared Mashiach or Messiah. So three elements that I want to point out to you. First is this, that the son entered into a unique relationship with God. 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 says this, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. God's relationship with his people is always pictured in in terms of family. God's a father in Israel. This is his children, right? It's not in sterile organizational terms, but in in familial terms. God's a father, and he's a good father. He's a gracious father. He's also a just father, and he wants what's best for his children. And all of Israel, those are his children. But then he takes one, and he puts this one as firstborn. He elevates this one to be his representative over his people. And he declares him to be son. Right, what's it say here in chapter 2, verse 7? Uh, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, which is Second Samuel chapter 7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Right? Today, in this covenant renewal moment, I have begotten you. Or really, in a sense, I have, I have adopted you or caused you to be reborn into this status of being firstborn. But if you are firstborn son, it means that you live in under authority of the father. Right? It's, it's a family, but there's a hierarchy of authority. And you are now in a unique relationship with me, exercising my authority under my submission over my people or over my family. Second, he has an extensive inheritance. Verse 8. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance the very ends of the earth as your possession. When we we think of Israel, we normally think of a pretty limited geographic area, but God's ideal or God's intention was that his king would rule from Jerusalem over all the nations. That his son would establish perfect rule from Jerusalem over all peoples. Psalm 89, which is a Davidic psalm, says this, He will cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, that is, the highest of the kings of the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Third, he has absolute authority. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Uh, There are some Egyptian texts that describe uh, this ancient Near Eastern process or ceremony in which the king would inscribe on pottery the names of all of his enemies and then he would take them into the temple of his God and he would shatter them. Right? This visual representation of having authority over all of the nations 
that might rise up in rebellion against him. That's what the psalm is saying. You will shatter them like earthenware. You will rule and reign over them with a rod of iron. Your iron will crush clay. You will have perfect authority. Not just over Jerusalem and Israel, but over all nations. Now, obviously that ideal was never realized. Right? If you read First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, there were no good kings after the division. In the northern kingdom, there were no good kings. In the southern kingdom, in Judah, there were a few. But even those were imperfect. They often did not remove the high places. They allowed their people's worship to be fractured. And eventually, even the southern kingdom followed the pattern of the northern kingdom, worshiping the false gods, making false uh, alliances with, with foreign nations. And so even the northern kingdom was taken away, and then the southern kingdom was taken away to, into exile. But even as both nations, all Jews were in exile, God made promises to them. He made a new covenant. He said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And part of that new covenant is I will restore the throne of David. And part of that new covenant is I will, in fact, send a son and he will restore you to the land and he will wipe out my enemies and you will live in the fruitfulness of the land and he will rule and reign over all the earth in perfect righteousness and justice. And Israel is still waiting for that. Honestly, we're still waiting for that, but we know now who that son is. All right, we chose to study Matthew last year. I picked that gospel in particular because it really highlights the, the kingship of Jesus. You remember in Jesus' baptism, he goes down into the water and he comes up and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and then there's a voice from heaven. And what does that voice say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? In our, our, our New Testament-oriented minds, we immediately think, okay, son of God, uh, we, we think God and man, the hypostatic union, and we think of all of Paul's theology, he's fully God and he's fully man. But sonship in Jewish terms means king. It means ruler. When he came up out of the water, God was saying, this is my son. Think Psalm 2. Think uh, Psalm chapter 89. Think 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is my chosen ruler who will set all things right. Happening in at the transfiguration, right? Jesus' glory begins to shine, and Peter says, let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Moses and Elijah are gone. A voice comes down out of heaven and says, no, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is the one who will rule over all. We're told told in Romans chapter 1 that it happened again at the resurrection, that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the Son. Now, how did he demonstrate his kingship? Well, round one, when he first showed up, he gave in to the earthly rulers. And he allowed them to put him to death. Why? So that the debt of sin could be removed, so the kingdom that he would one day establish could be done in righteousness and reconciliation with us because sin had been paid for. But we're told in the book of Revelation that that son will one day return. And if you want to sit down this afternoon and have a little light reading, get into chapter 16 and 19 of Revelation. It talks about the, the battle of Armageddon, which is kind of an anticlimactic battle, actually. Right? All the nations of the earth gather together in the valley of Megiddo to fight against God. I mean, to fight against one another. And then they decide, no, let's not fight against each other. Let's fight against God instead. And as soon as they make that decision, Jesus shows up and they're gone. Right? I mean, that's kind of how the battle works out because... The power of the Son of God is so transcendent over earthly powers. And that's, that's history. We call it prophecy, but it's, it's future history. 
But that's where things will move. That's where things have moved every time God has chosen to intervene in history. He has the power and the authority to set all things right, and he will set all things right through his son. Now, in light of that, the psalmist says, here's how to live well. Submit. Live in submission. This is how life works. Live in submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Read with me again chapter 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Or uh, if, if I can give you, a, I think, a little bit better translation, it reads like this. So now, you kings, do what is wise. You rulers of the earth, submit to correction. Serve the Lord in fear, repent in terror, kiss the Son, otherwise he will be angry, and you will die because of your behavior when his wrath or his anger quickly ignites. How blessed are all who take shelter in him. I, I, I like this translation because it says very clearly, it says, now you kings, do what is wise. In, in light of what's just been described, this dialogue between the creator of the universe and his son, do what is wise. It's kind of like what Job experienced after all of his suffering and his debate with God and God's self-revelation. Chapter 42, Job says, okay, I heard about you before, but now I see you and I'm on my knees. Do what is wise. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is living in, in joyful submission. Again, look at how the psalm ends. It says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him, this, this applies to rulers, it applies to nations, it applies to us personally. Submit, live in submission, submit. Isn't that one of your favorite words? <laughs> I don't know, I don't, I kind of, something inside of me goes, hmm. There's just something inside me that says, no, I, I think I can figure this out. I want, it, I want to do it my own way. I don't, I don't, I don't want somebody else telling me what to do and where to go and how to do things. Submit. That's what... Adam and Eve fell for. They said, no, no, no. What the adversary, Satan, that serpent has just described, that's freedom. We want that freedom. And, and they pursued independence from God. And what did they discover? They didn't discover freedom. They discovered slavery. Right? They substituted a good and kind and benevolent father for a ruler who wanted to kill and destroy them. A couple years ago, I found this quote by Phillips Brooks. I think it's so insightful. He says, No man in this world attains to freedom from any slavery except by entrance into some higher servitude. There is no such thing as an entirely free man conceivable. We are, in theological terms, we're called contingent beings. We are dependent on another because we're created. We're not the creator. And so we find our greatest life in submission to our creator. That's our, that's our greatest freedom. That's our greatest hope for life. And that's ultimately the hope of all nations. Okay, so uh, how do we apply this? Um, we're going to close with communion. So if I can ask the servers to go back and get prepared, let me give you a couple of thoughts on uh, how we can apply this. Derek Kidner is one of the greatest Old Testament 
commentators, scholars, and he said this, there's no refuge from him, there's only refuge in him. I I love that quote. There's no refuge from him because you, you just can't live apart from God well. It's not how we're designed. There's no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. That's what the psalmist is saying here. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him, right? Safe, because we're protected from the holiness of God and his wrath against sin by this covering who is Jesus. Remember we said a couple weeks ago, our calling here as a church is, is worship and witness. As we proclaim that Jesus is worth more than anything else we have in life and we set him as center of our lives, then, then everything else kind of falls in place around Jesus as first and foremost. And as we appreciate God's goodness and his kindness, we, we appreciate his good rulership over us, we learn to joyfully submit. And as, as we experience that life in God, there's something in us that longs for others to experience it as well. So we reach out, say, please join us in glad submission to Jesus. Right? He, he's the son of God and he's a good and kind ruler. And so I really think church for us, our calling uh, as we're going through life and we're reading these headlines, we don't, we don't panic, but we have hope. And as we're going through our own trials and tribulations in life, Rather than shaking our fist at God, we say, God, we don't understand, but we trust you. And we believe that you're good. And the reason, ultimately, that we believe you're good is because we see the perfect intersection of your attributes in the cross of Jesus. We see your justice and your holiness. We see that you hate sin as a result. But we see that that wrath against sin is poured out on Jesus and not on us. So we get his love. And that draws us deeper to Jesus because we see God's perfections in him. And so what I'd like for us to do as we close is just to take a few moments and thank God for the cross of Jesus. Thank, thank him that we, we see in that cross all that is perfect in God. And then let's take a few moments quietly to renew our commitment to live under the authority of Jesus. If I could ask the servers to come forward, we'll wait till everyone is served and then we'll take the elements together. When you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The bread represents the body of Christ broken because of our sins. Let's take the bread together. Cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ, the finality of his death as a payment for our sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you that you have appointed your son Jesus to rule and reign forever. And we thank you that you appointed him to die once as a payment for our sins. And we thank you, Father, that he was willing and courageous obedience to follow that pathway to the cross so that we could be reconciled to you. That gives us courage and hope. I pray, Father, that today we would live in that hope even when we see headlines that can be discouraging and frightening and unnerving. But we know your plan and we know your son. Father, we thank you that we know the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for our confident hope that he will return and he will rule and reign. We pray, Father, uh, that as we anticipate that and look forward to that, that we would be reminded that he is also king of our lives and that we would learn to live in 
joyful submission, not in rebellion and resistance, but that we would trust that you are a good father and that you long for what is best in our lives. And we find that best when we give in to you. And Father, I pray that as we do so, that our lives would become increasingly radiant for Jesus, for those around us in this community who don't know your son, they would be drawn through us to him. It's in the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week living in submission to Jesus. See you next week.